You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. During this episode, Mike Pritz and I welcome Joe Pacino from the U.S. Army 82nd Airborne Division All-American Legacy Podcast. We talk about the differences between leadership and airborne units versus the conventional army. We also touch on military transition and some of the programs that the 82nd Airborne Division has now put in place. Hey, it's summer and the sun is bright out, so be sure to head over to skeletonoptics.com and use the code MENTORS, the number 4MIL, to receive your discount on Italian handcrafted frames as well as Carl's Ice Lens. Okay, it's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of Mentors for Military. Mike served with the uh, 82nd Airborne in his youth. And uh, <laughs> long time ago, <laughs> a long time ago, <laughs> yeah. I was in division good. 1986. So, okay, good. So, the guys that I'd served with, not most of the guys, but the, all the other guys, probably E6 and above, were all uh, Grenada vets. Mm. Um, so I mean, that's the, the time I spent. I only spent out two and a half years there, my first, uh, my first term in the army. Oh, wow, good, yeah, many moons good. ago. Uh, Mike's the old fart. Robert's older than me by a long shot. So, <laughs> so Joe, how long? He just doesn't throw it on his face to yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Joe, how long have you been with the 82nd? Uh, now, so it's been about 15 months, so a little more than a year. I got there right around. Uh, I got there. I guess I got there right around All American Week last year. So, where were you at prior to that? Prior to that, I was in the Pentagon for a year, basically waiting for the job to come open, and I'd never been in the 82nd previously <laughs> i'd gone i'd gone 19 years without uh i always wanted to you know i always wanted to serve in 82nd but I, I went 19 years without doing it and i kind of thought i was ne- it was never going to happen for me so, yeah so you kind of did the opposite as me so i started yeah. there yeah and, um, and you know often often thought about um at least before i went special forces thought about going back into division mm-hmm. um and it just never it never never got the the stars to align on that let me ask mm-hmm. what you do in the pentagon I work for the Army Public Affairs folks. Okay. You know, media relations kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you, did you happen to work with a guy named Earl Brown? It doesn't. It doesn't sound familiar. No. Just, just finished up the uh, Army PAO internship with the National Football League. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I know the the folks you're talking about. No, that's in a that's not in a different area. But yeah, I, I know who you're. I actually have heard the name before. Uh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you guys just recently started a podcast there with the 82nd. How long have you been doing that? So we started in January, and we released uh, our 26th episode today. Yeah, I saw that. 20, 26 episodes into it, and uh, the All-American Legacy podcast. We we tell a different story from the legacy and the history, the 100-year history every week, with new episodes every Tuesday on, on iTunes and um you know, it was always supposed to be a limited series. We were supposed to do fifteen, and um, oh, really? That's it? Just fifteen? We were just supposed to do fifteen, you know, and then and then uh, we were going to do the big operations, kind of the big events in the division's history, and then we started telling the story chronologically. And there were too many stories. There was too much to talk about for us to really to stop. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, you've got a very storied history, so the last thing you want to do is cut it short and try to give only a snippet of the whole uh, history. It wouldn't do it justice for something like the 82nd Airborne that's been around forever. Right, yeah, we've got a long history, and just te- just getting through World War II, there's so many different stories to tell. But once you get past World War II, there's 
there's a lot of, you know, we focus so much on World War II in the 82nd. I mean, everything, everything in that division area is either named after World War II, the airborne operations, or has images of the airborne operations. And so, you know, so much, we have a hundred year history and, and we focus so much on these, basically these, <laughs> these four combat operations, four combat jumps. And, and it's important. It was important for the world, but we've done a lot of other stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of other history there. I listened to last week's podcast, uh, I think it was last week or the week before when you had your last podcast on uh, On the Beret, yeah. yeah. And, uh, of course, I arrived, uh, Mike was talking about 86, I arrived in uh, Fulda, Germany, with 11th ACR in 1982. And when I arrived there, these guys were... I was in the 8th grade, Robert. Yeah, get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) So... So it's funny, I was talking to somebody today, uh, James Webb from Conway Cattle, and uh, I said something about that, and he goes, yeah, I was born in 87. I was like, yeah, that makes me feel great. So anyway, going back to the 11th ACR and the berets and everything, I remember going to, I think it was one of my first NCOPDs, and um, uh, God, the, Colonel Franks was the uh, commander of the regiment, and after him, was it was uh, it became General Abrams. It was Colonel Abrams, though, after, uh, at that time frame after Franks. But Franks served in 11th ACR uh, during uh, Vietnam. And I remember sitting in their a theater, and all of a sudden the lights go uh, black, and the Rocky theme star, uh, song starts, you know. And the lights go flashing. I'm like, what the heck is this? And here comes Colonel Franks with his black beret that he wore, and, you know, he's talking about, yeah, it was commie blood on my beret and blah, blah. And then he started talking about how we're going to get the berets back, you know, and how important it is to the regiment and blah, blah, blah. We're going to fight this. I had no clue what he was talking about. So when I listen, I fast forward now to um, two weeks podcast on the 82nd Airborne where they're talking about, you know, you guys are talking about the beret and the history of yeah. it and everything. And you start talking about the black beret and, and uh, that whole bit. And how different units had different berets. I remember that time very well because of that period when Colonel Frakes come walking down in, in a uh, NCOPD, uh, you know, wearing the black beret and talking about how the regiment's going to get the beret back. Of course, the regiment never got the beret back. The black beret ended up going to the uh, Rangers, and it lived there and, until uh, the whole army decided to, to take that on. They gave them the OD. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because that's not... You know, one of the things you find in, in looking at the, the history is that the beret is relatively recent for the 82nd, but it's the thing we're most identified with, you know. So I kind of thought we'd had it forever. I thought we had it since 1942 at least, and, um, you know, it wasn't until the late 70s. Yeah. I remember, you know, guys wearing the old uh, garrison cap and everything, yeah. and uh, then, of course, the our— The glider patch, right? Yeah, with the glider yeah. patch on I don't remember, honestly, in my military career when the Maroon Beret came on, so it was really fascinating listening to the podcast and getting the bit of history and, of course, remembering a lot of the whole, again, the angst that came with the fact that so many had to give up their berets, and uh, it wasn't a a popular thing. So, you know, move forward many years when the Army decides to go to the Black Beret, I, I can remember several people were complaining because they had to wear the Black Beret. You know, or had to wear a beret in general. But yet it's a distinctive thing with both the special forces that you came out of, Mike, as well as the 82nd, you know, back a long time ago, the 101st. And it was it was something that signified an elite organization. 
outside of the I, conventional I think, army. I think that's what it's about. It's, I mean, because Robert, it's an awful piece of headgear. I mean, it only keeps you know gear <laughs> warm in the winter time, and it never <laughs> keeps the sun out of your eyes. So if you don't actually associate some type of, I, I don't know, um, a spree a- along with wearing that headgear. It really doesn't mean anything to you. So just just saying that, hey, the organizational headgear of the United States Army is now going to be a beret because it looks cool. Well, there's no utility in that type of headgear. So I think you've got to you got you got to want to wear it. You've got to earn it, and you got to wear it with pride, as opposed to just being told, hey, this is the new headgear and what you're going to wear. Right. There's got to be some personal meaning behind it. Right. Yeah. You know, there's got to be <laughs> rather than uh, you know this is now for everybody. There it has to be. There has to be something something about it and you know in the 82nd even if you're not on airborne status you have the maroon beret and, and i understand that we say that everybody in the 82nd is an all-american paratrooper because they all contribute to the mission they all contribute to us being on airborne status and they all contribute to the global response force so you know it's it's there's a lot of pride in it there's really a lot of pride in it you know one of the things that we wanted to talk about in reference to the 82nd of course is the difference when we're talking about the conventional army and how the beret came about and just our periods of time of service but it's also about leadership and how the 82nd approaches leadership in some ways differently than the conventional army. And I think this might be a great opportunity to kind of segue into that and talk about those differences. And, um, you know, you having served very early on, Mike, in the 82nd, you probably experienced in your early years that leadership difference that probably carried forward, I would imagine, throughout your career. I'd say it was shaping. Right as as to what I became as a leader, um, I, I wasn't an infantryman. I was a combat engineer, um, but we were sliced off, and and there was a squad of us that went out with a company of infantry. All of us were expected to go to uh, the Airborne Leader Course or the Recondo School back, you know, when I was there in the 80s. I don't know what they if they run a like course like that now, but essentially everybody who who is the a fire team leader or above goes through these. Um, basically battle drill training. So you'd spend a week out at the ALC course and you'd learn small unit tactics. You'd learn the dismounted battle drills. You'd learn the trooper leading procedures and kind of grooming guys to get ready to go into ranger school because they really, you know, during the late 80s had a big push to get a lot of uh, people, E5 and above anyway, um, ranger qualified in the 82nd Airborne Division. So there, there was this big emphasis on decentralized small unit leadership. And um, I, I think I, I continued the same type of mentality. Uh, I was I was a platoon sergeant in the 1st Cavalry Division before I went to Special Forces Assessment and Selection. So I, I think I, I continued that same style of leadership. Um, but I, I think it I think everybody does. I mean, if you if you start out that way, either in the Ranger Regiment or in the 82nd Airborne Division, I just think it's by nature what how you learn from leaders initially. Is how you will, you know, continue to groom junior leaders as you as you move throughout the army. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it's an interesting perspective having gone 19 years and and coming to the 82nd as as already a lieutenant colonel. You know, that uh, coming in, it's it's certainly it's obviously very humbling and very eye opening. But you know, when you do airborne operations, we bestow there's an awful lot of trust and a lot an awful lot of uh, a awful lot that's bestowed on our junior leaders and E5s and E6s that are running the operation, you know, basically yeah. commanding the airborne operation. And so, you know, it's, it's unlike anything I've, I've seen anywhere else. And, uh, you know, everybody has to jump regardless of rank. Everybody's got to jump and everybody's got to, you know, everybody's got to follow the commands of the jump master team. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, 
there's certainly a lot of authority placed on on lower levels and you know one of the things when you when you look at the history that that's really the way that the division was built in, in 1942 and you know one of the things that uh, General Ridgway and his his AAR when he was training the division in Camp Claiborne and training the division in Africa he wrote in his AAR that for this kind of organization when we get on the ground the private has to be the equal of the general they're all the same once they get on the ground and so that's the idea of you know LGOPs little groups of paratroopers that you know, the private takes discipline initiative, moves to find the next paratrooper, and they move out, and they understand in a broad sense where they, they, you know, move to the sound of the guns type thing and what they're supposed to be doing. And so that's a lot of trust bestowed on, on very low levels. You know, we call that today, we call it mission command. <clears throat> and we talk about it a lot in the Army. We talk about mission command all the time, but, you know, that trust is really exercised here in a way that it isn't not any other parts of the army and and i see it in a way that people in the 82nd don't see it because the other lieutenant colonels in the 82nd have like been in the 82nd <laughs> forever yeah but, so so they, they don't understand how special that is or right. how unique that is but i did the same job in the first armor division and it would be you know it'd be unheard of for it'd be unheard of for uh 05 06 or you know E9 to take commands from an E5 or an E6 who's running the airborne operation. You know, basically, you get into green ramp and you're you're following orders. So it's a really neat thing, and and there's there's a really cool camaraderie around everybody. That you know, I, I say that you know, I tell my wife that airborne operations are the great equalizer. You know, you go in there, there's a lot of you know, everybody's sort of talking to one another. You know, you're right very close to everybody else and. Everybody's kind of on the same playing field. You all got to exit the aircraft regardless. And so, you know, you just develop rapport with people in a way that will cross ranks that you don't anywhere else in the Army, you know. I mean, it was a cool thing. I'd gone, I'd gone 19 years in between in between jumps. My fifth and sixth year, I had 19 <laughs> years. And so, you know. Wow, that's six, a long time, yeah. That's a, a hell of a cherry blast. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, uh, so my sixth jump, I was standing up, you know, I was hooked up, standing up, and, uh, you know, just looking around, because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't remember what happened, what was supposed to happen. I was looking around, and, and, you know, just look at people's faces, and everywhere there's people slapping each other on the head, and, hey, have a good jump, brother. Hey, we got it. We'll see you on the drop zone, brother. You know, it was just a, it was a really cool sort of kinship yeah. that I shared with them. You know, it was just, it, it was a very cool feeling for me. Yeah. I, I, I just, it's something in the Army I hadn't really experienced previously. Yeah. So they didn't take right. you out and have you do PLFs or anything prior to... Uh... No. <laughs> of course they did. No, I mean, I thought they were going to have to send me through airborne school again. And, uh, like, no, go go to uh, basic airborne refresher and, uh, you know, you go to... Yes, the, he did PLFs, Robert. Oh, okay. PLFs. You probably he jumped out of the tower. Yeah. They got a tower for their airborne he refresher. They jumped out of the tower. Yeah, we did do that. Did do I that. want to circle back to something because it, when we talked about this, Robert, it, it's something that I really... Uh, it, it didn't really dawn on me kind of the nature of, of the way leadership is in 82nd. I haven't been a very young guy, and I didn't go to jump master school until later. Uh, but something Joe said, really, that sets the tone, it makes it so much different than the rest of the Army. And I think for some of the listeners, listeners who aren't in airborne units, um, maybe it bears a little bit of ex- explanation. So you can go to jump master school in the 82nd Airborne Division as soon as you are not commissioned officer. When I was When I was in the 82nd, you could do it as a corporal. So it's entirely possible that you could be running a battalion airborne operation um, 
unlikely that a corporal is going to be the airborne commander. Unlikely that a corporal will be the primary jump master, but he very well could be a safety on an aircraft making a call on whether or not somebody will or will not jump. Uh, he could be the drop zone safety officer uh, reading winds, making a call on whether or not an entire organization does or does not jump. And often the airborne commander, who is a battalion commander or higher, doesn't like the decisions that are being made by that junior non-commissioned officer. And often he is a jump master. So he's responsible for a lot more than what we would expect a, a corporal or a sergeant, even a staff sergeant in, in other types of units in the Army. And I, I've got 25 years out of 30 on jump status. And I, I have seen a number of times, uh, and it's happened to me when, when somebody's come up and I said, no, this isn't safe. Uh, the, the safety equipment is on this, isn't on this aircraft. Uh, we jump a lot of, a lot of uh, non-standard stall aircraft uh, in special forces which have recovery equipment that's very different than comes on a standard U.S. Air Force aircraft. So if we have a problem with towed jumpers, you've got to be able to manually winch them in instead of having a, an anchor line retriever cable that can, that can bring them in back to the aircraft. So I, I've seen this kind of thing happen when, when there's a lot of numbers. There's people jump pays at stake. Uh, organizational readiness and training is at stake because you've got to get operations done. Uh, and then you've got to look that guy in the eye who may be an 05 or an 06. Um, when you're, you know, E4 corporal to E6 or E7 and say, no, sir, we're not going to jump. I'm the jump master, and it's my responsibility. So that's something that, that junior leaders in the 82nd Airborne Division and other airborne units, um, I think that, that that type of responsibility is laid on them, and it's not it's not placed on them similarly in other types of units. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. Um, and it, it develops, it, it, you can see that it develops stronger leaders. Absolutely. I mean, they've got to make a call, and, and oftentimes that puts them in a in type of a dilemma, right? Mm. They know what the right answer is, and they've got pressure from a leader who wants you know doesn't want to hurt anybody, but he wants to he wants the organization to jump. He wants people to get their jump pay. He wants to get onto whatever mission is off of Sicily Drop Zone. So so there's pressures there, but if it's not safe, we expect him, I and mean, we train him to make the right call, and we put him in that position to make the right decision. And, and often, you know, I think it's um, I think it's Mike Hall, uh, former USASOC Command Sergeant Major and, and uh, ISAF Command Sergeant Major with General McChrystal, who used to tell the story when he was a young E5, uh, getting toe-to-toe -to -toe with his battalion commander in a Ranger Regiment, saying, no, we're not jumping. I'm the jump master. You put me in charge for the safety of these men. We're not jumping. And uh, it was heated on the aircraft. And then when they landed and calmer, you know, uh, tempers prevailed, Battalion commander walked up to him and said, you know, Sergeant Hall, you were right. Uh, I shouldn't have mm -hmm. done that on here. But that's the kind of thing. I mean, we groom, you know, leadership skills at a very young, very young age in these types of units. I, I would say that's definitely different than the conventional army in a lot of different ways. Because as you had mentioned, you don't usually get into those types of leadership roles until, in some cases, you might be an E5, an E6. Um, a corporal might experience some of that very early on, but usually you're only challenging a lieutenant. You certainly wouldn't challenge a lieutenant colonel, Fulberg colonel at that at that rank. So it's it's a definitely a different experience from a leadership standpoint. Yeah, it's and it's a it's just a very cool place to, uh, to just to serve, and and I I just imagine that it's just an incredible place to grow up in the army. You know, you just grow up, I'm sure, faster than you would anywhere else, and you. You know, your leadership muscles are exercised much faster and much stronger than anywhere else in the Army. So it's, uh, I'm having a lot of fun, I'll tell you that. That's great. 
Yeah. And, and on that jump, just so you know, I, I, I was just fine. <laughs> <laughs> up until... I said, I'm gonna, and then up until the uh, the door opened. Yeah. You know, and I couldn't see. I was like the fifth fifth man, because I couldn't see at the door. But I could hear the whole the whole world going by. Oh yeah. I said, boy, this is like this is terrifying. <laughs> and, you're, and you know, and when you're jumping, like particularly in the eighty second, you're so low to the ground. I don't think people. I I, I skydive too, and, and you know, you don't jump that low yeah. to the ground when you're right. flying on an airplane. If you can imagine. And you're coming in on final approach, and if you like to look out the look out the windows, you're landing here at Colorado Springs Airport. When you really think you're about to land, you're still probably six or eight hundred feet up. That's the altitude that door opens. <laughs> right. and you're looking out there. There's no way we're jumping this low to the ground. Yeah. Uh, I remember my first jump out of out of uh, jump school in the eighty second was on Salerno Drop Zone, and it was uh, it was an eight hundred foot jump. I jumped out. It was a daytime jump. Uh, one of the few I had in the division. And um, I had a poor exit out of a C-141 that was twisted all the way up to oh, the silk God. Road. And I, I, I was bicycling out of it. As I came out, I hit the ground. That is oh. all the time that I had from the time I exited the aircraft until I hit the ground. Oh, my um, God. There's just, you know, you don't you don't understand it unless you've ever done it. We don't even jump that low in, in Special Forces. I mean, it's rare you're going to get a jump below, you know, 1,200, 1,500 feet. And often guys want to take it up to 2,000 or higher. Oh, yeah. You started listening to those guys talk about the combat jumps, uh, having to come in at 500 feet. I think it was Grenada. I remember a lot of guys talking about that and coming in so hot like they did. Yeah, I mean, actually, do you think about how quick that actually is as you're coming out of the aircraft? Yeah, we talked to the Panama guys, and they, they jumped in at 500 feet, and they knew they were going to jump in at 500 feet when they were back at uh, Green Ramp here in Fort Bragg, when they were leaving Fort Bragg. And... But we talked to a bunch of folks, and they said that uh, we had the option to wear the reserve. You know, you wear the reserve around your midsection there, and uh, they said we have the option. We had the option to wear the reserve because it's not going to be any good. It's not going to be any good at that point. Um, it's too late. Yeah. It's too late to pull your reserve. So your main, your main parachute better work. But um, just about everybody we talked to used the reserve. You know, wore the reserve anyway because they were comfortable with it. They were familiar. That's the only way they knew how to jump, and so they just wanted to go with all the same, same sure. equipment. One guy not, uh, opted not to not to use it at all. But not to mention, it provides you some level of protection across the abdomen when you're exposed <laughs> yeah. in the yeah. air. Right? If somebody is yeah. shooting at you, yeah, they're shooting up yeah. abdomens first, so there's a little bit of protection. Yeah, in the best spot. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, it's it's just interesting when, when you see. Everybody seems to be when I when I do these uh, airborne operations here. Everybody seems to be nervous on some level. You know how can you not be? Yeah. Everybody seems to be nervous. Some people are showing it more than others, and, and I, I think I I feel like I mask it well. But uh, yeah. you know, it's just for me. It's always when the when the door opens. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm just fine until the door opens. Well, you know, it's funny, too. You see a lot of folks that post, and we do the same thing. As you know, Mike, we've post, posted even a picture of you uh, doing halo jumps and stuff. And uh, people look at that, and they and they don't realize, as you had mentioned, that it's not all that glamorous. Um, oh, no. It's, I mean, we, you show the fun side of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're looking at from from a static line perspective. Man, it's, I, I don't know, Joe, confirm this or not, is it still a nine-hour sequence to hit the drop zone in Sicily from the time you start doing pre-jump and everything in the, in the company areas? Yeah, it's a long sequence. It's a long sequence, and uh, it's, not, it's not nine hours. So 
what we've done, our, what our command has done, is spread out the airborne sequence. So you can do it over a period of days. So you do, you know, all the, the pre-jump training, you do that. You know, you've got to do it within a certain window, so it's still fresh in your mind. But you do the pre-jump training, and then the next day you can come back and do, you know, do your briefing, your, your sort of deco briefing on the, the operation, and then you come back the next day, and you just go right into, um, you know, preparing your equipment, rigging your equipment, and then going into the sequence. So it's less time. What we're trying to do, what the command is trying to do and has done successfully is keep paratroopers in the harness for, for less time, keep them involved in the process for less time, because um, that's where a lot of airborne injuries come from. Right. Is you've got all that equipment on, you're in the harness for a very long period of time, you've been in the process for nine hours, and then you exit the aircraft, and uh, that's really you get, you get musculoskeletal injuries that and you're fatigued sometimes, and, you're, and you're fatigued and yeah. you're fatigued and you're you're sort of bent over you're hunched over yep. so we're um, we've had success with that we've actually reduced airborne injuries with that process. Yeah, actually, I think that uh, you just described something that probably occurred with me within airborne school. As a matter of fact, uh, pulling it too tight, getting it, uh, yeah. and, and jumping out even even out of the towers. You know, another thing I do want to talk about though in uh, the eighty second is some of the struggles that we've seen uh, people coming out of the military. Is the military transition? Uh, we do a really good job within the military of building up uh, a soldier taking them and breaking a civilian down to become a soldier. And then when they exit the service, I think that there's still a real good opportunity to take that same individual and help them transition better than perhaps we do today. Uh, they to get them back acclimated into the private sector. And so I know one of the things that the 82nd has done that you've mentioned to me, Joe, is created a program uh, that goes beyond just the transition assistance program. Yeah, so we call the program, this is called Paratroopers for Life, and this is a big initiative for Command Sergeant Major Green, our division Command Sergeant Major, and it's just now becoming embedded in the culture of the 82nd. And so Paratroopers for Life is, we say that we're going to give our paratroopers and families a soft landing when they leave, uh, when they take the uniform off, they leave the 82nd and they leave the Army. And so what we've done is we've partnered with the... Uh, local service organizations, um, the police, fire, emergency services, the next we're, we're going to expand out to the trucking industry, but we've wrapped our arms around the Fayetteville City Council and the Fayetteville community, and we do, um, we do these sessions where we bring, in, uh, we bring in police officers and they talk to the paratroopers we have that are leaving, uh, that are considering leaving uh, the force and, and going into the police force continuing to serve there in the police somewhere in the United States. And so they've done, they've partnered together and they've done ride-alongs. We, we matched the paratroopers with the police officers. They've done ride-alongs. They've taken some of the tests they've got to take to get into, uh, you know, law enforcement academies or get into the police force. We brought the fire department on and they talked about, um, you know, they talked about how the skills from the army translate easily into a career in, in the fire department. And, you know, one of the things we're finding is that paratroopers make really good, keep really good employees. So things that, that people are looking to hire are, you know, specific skill sets, people that are, are good under pressure, people that have discipline, people that, you know, the basics report to work on time, people that are, you know, and then when you look at the emergency services, you look at people that are physically fit, 
um, people that can make decisions quickly. And so our paratroopers have all those things. And then when what what I think the police and fire didn't really understand, it didn't weren't really understanding it and, and understand now is that you know the military education translates really well into the civilian world. You know all the military education we give these paratroopers and the American soldier that we invest in building soldiers up, you know, that translates really well into the civilian community. And so that wasn't fully understood. And through that, through these dialogues, um, you know, the police are, are the police and, and the fire department are really, they kind of open their eyes to that. But it also has opened our, our paratroopers eyes to the, the opportunities that are out there. And, you know, what, what's interesting is that our reenlistment folks said, uh, we shouldn't be doing this because we're going to entice people to leave the army rather than reenlist. <laughs> and you yeah. know, and we found that's actually not the case. You no. know, a, a lot of it's not the case because paratroopers said, "Look, the, the organization cares about me, regardless of what exactly. I'm going to do, what decision." Yeah, good leadership is good leadership. Yeah, good leadership is good leadership. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. So, you know, paratroopers for life extends beyond the 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 lifespan in the 82nd. And what we're also looking at now is the complete cradle to grave. So that paratrooper and his family, how do we keep them in the 82nd, you know, beyond his life in the Army, but how do we keep them a part of our family forever? You know, there are, once you wear the double-A patch, you're an all-American paratrooper for life. So what does that really mean for the paratrooper's family? That's what we're exploring now. And a lot of it is outreach, like the kind of thing I do, um, communication. And a lot of it is our traditions, like All-American Week, you know, bringing people back on Sicily Drop Zone when we do jumps, bringing people back for our division runs, um, but keeping a, a tie with our, our alumni and the family of our alumni. You know, that's really the next phase of Paratroopers for Life. Oh, I think that's outstanding. And I think that the way that you guys are actually introducing uh, these soldiers out to the private sector is going to be very beneficial because some of them may not realize um, the the additional steps that they're going to have to take in order to make that transition. So it could be education, different skill sets that they need to obtain. They're going to get a chance to talk to somebody that's going to be on the outside to act as a mentor towards them and uh, or a coach to help them make that transition whenever it may come. And, uh, you know, as we discussed here, it could very well be that that's three years, six years. It could it could help that soldier identify, you know, I'm just not ready right now. And, and reenlistment yeah. is an option that they need to consider at this point. And I don't mention it often, but I did write a, a book called uh, Master the Transition. And in the book, I mm -hmm. tried to talk about that very same thing, is that you need to have a plan. You need to determine what your passion is. But you also need to create a plan much like you do in anything within the military as we start towards an objective, we do a very good job of uh, gathering all the detailed information that's going to be required to get us to a successful mission. And you need to approach the same way, you know, transition the same way as you're getting out and make sure that you have all the tools, make sure you understand who your peer group is, uh, make sure you understand um, all the things that could end up being roadblocks along the way. So I, I think that what you guys are doing is tremendous. Should help you uh, acclimate, uh, help your soldiers acclimate a whole lot better uh, back into the private sector. At least determine from a gauge where they're at within their life and their career that they may need to uh, add particular skill sets or training or learning. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, getting involved in the program and helping put the program together 
is helpful for a lot of leaders, I think, like me that have only done this. You know, this is right. really the only thing we know. But, you know, we're all going to take the uniform off. And so we've all got to find something that doesn't just pay the bills because, you know, there, there are a lot of things you can do in this country that pay the bills, but is going to be fulfilling and is going to be personally rewarding. And so I think that's, I think, one of the things that Paratroopers for Life help, helps us do. You know, I just talked to a guy last Friday who, uh, staff sergeant, who's leaving the Army, and uh, he got he did a two-week uh, mentorship with the Fayetteville Fire Department. You know, every every day, two weeks, he was he was there, went on some ride-alongs, went to meetings, you know, sat in their meetings, and he's going back to Indiana, and he's going to be he's going to apply to the fire department, and he's got he's got uh, now, you know, he's got some uh, letters from these folks here in Fayetteville. He's got this experience, and he understands what he's getting into and what he has to do to, to succeed in that career. So, um, you know, it's a really cool thing, but it's also, it's also, you know, let you know that there's a lot of things out there. There's an awful lot out there, and you've got to find something that's going to be personally rewarding and personally fulfilling. It's interesting in putting together the Paratroopers for Life program and helping put it together that it's forced me to think and, and understand that, there's a lot of things you can do in the United States, and, and we only see like I've I've only seen I've only seen this. This is all I've done. This is all I know. But there's a lot of things you can do in the United States. But you've got to find something that is going to be personally rewarding and personally fulfilling. And and coming back onto a military post in some contract or civilian capacity that that's not going to be rewarding for everybody. Right. But it, it's easy for a lot of people. And, and yeah. I, I think that um, I think that a lot of people find some comfort in that. Um, I, I'm the same way. And I, I heard Robert talking earlier about you know you, you got to encourage people to find their passion. Um, and, and Robert and I have talked about this a lot. Uh, you know, to me, you know, money comes second. You know, I want to be I, I want to be engaged and I want to contribute to society. I want to give back and I want to do things that that you intangible. I and mean, you can't pay me for the kinds of things that I enjoy to do now. Um, yeah. And thankfully, a retirement affords me the opportunity to, to say that, right? I can, I can sit back a little bit and I can look at things that don't pay as well as long as I get some personal satisfaction out of it. Um, I, I think if you're willing to do that, you've got you've to make that plan. And, you know, um, Robert calls that a runway. You, you've got you've to plan that a couple of years out. You've got to set aside enough money and you've got you've to be able to take the time to determine what your passion is. And from what I heard you saying, I know there's a, there's a good partnership with the police and the fire department there in, in Fayetteville that, that will find some people will find their passion, you know, in, in continuing those type of emergency services. And I think you're right, Joe. I think that the type of small unit leadership that we teach in the 82nd Airborne Division, I think it translates very well to those organizations um, where we have a harder time translating our skills is you're leaving that environment altogether. I mean, we're very similar to, to the emergency systems of police and firefighters, EMS. But I think if you're going into business like what Robert did, um, you've really got to be more, I think, versed in in the, the, the business you know language and, and understand how you can translate skills, which most people, if they've never served in the military, you know, they don't understand what you did. And most of us don't understand how to how, how to explain it. Um, like you, I, I did from the time I got out of high school until the time I retired, you know, from the Army 30 years later, this is all that I did. Um, so it took me, what, Robert, a year or so to kind of figure out yeah. what what exactly path I was going to take. 
I think you've got to afford yourself the time to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think, you know, the Army has to do a better job of, of – the Army has to do a better job of outreach and explaining what what the Army is doing, what it's the nation's soldiers are doing and what we contribute and how we contribute and what we're doing when we're not in Afghanistan and Iraq and why we're in all these other countries that we're in uh, all over the world and all these different continents. I think – and in many ways, the Army's doing a better job of that. The Army's really matured that process over the last 10 years. But, you know, we seem to always kind of wall ourselves into these installations and consider everything, you know, this is my commissary, this is my P, this is our stuff here. And, you know, we work at the behest of the uh, American people who pay into all this process. And so, you know, anything that we can do to get out of the walls and, and go communicate and and explain what we're doing for the nation, explain what we're doing on behalf of the nation and, and who we are, you know, who we are as a as an 82nd Airborne Division or as an army, as the People's Army. Um, anything we can do, I think, helps that transition and helps that civil military gap and that divide. And it's only it's only going to be good for us. Yeah, I, can, I can't agree more. I mean, and then you think about the Hollywood portrayal and, of course, what they see in the, uh, the news and the paper and everything about the, right. the war. And so it starts portraying a particular image. So at that point, you have to have uh, the mechanisms in place to make sure that you're establishing kind of the truth uh, that's out there of what a, a soldier is or a military person is. Uh, and how they're going to benefit society returning back. And I agree with you. I think the military, from the most part, has done a pretty good job at that. I think that, uh, you know, we spend so much time, rightfully so, while we're in the military, focusing on the mission and accomplishing the objective. And when it's time for a soldier to separate, um, that usually isn't identified until their last 12 months or less that this soldier is going to depart. And it's and that, in some cases, may be way too far down the runway. And that's what Mike was talking about. That, yeah. that if it's something that's always within the back of a soldier's mind um, as they're going through the military, that, hey, one day we're all going to transition, by the way, then yeah. we're focusing on that through your career. Hey, are you better in your education? Hey, are you looking at your skills that you're, uh, you're obtaining right now? Are they How are they going to benefit you? Do you know what your passion is? You know, if you haven't... Do some soul searching along the way. Try to figure it out so we can match an education and a training plan to that. And you know, it obviously, if time permits and mission uh, permits and all that kind of good stuff. But uh, you know, we can't let um, we can't let good soldiers go out and then fall short when they do walk out the door. Um, that that's my concern is that they're walking out the door and they end up falling short of what truly I believe many of the the expectations. Um, they're either set too low or they're they're walking at the door and they're not um, they're not exercising uh, the capabilities that they should should be able to, to exercise if that makes yeah. any sense you know what we do with paratrooper flights is we feel like we give them the tools yeah and so I think there there's a lack of awareness but there's also a you know look there's a personal responsibility part of this absolutely well. absolutely that, uh, you know this is your family this is your it's your life. <laughs> Um, you've got to start thinking critically about this stuff. Yep. Um, and part, you know, part of that is leadership. You know, talking to you know young paratroopers, young soldiers as they come in. You know, when, when they're 
you know, when they're new to the process and just talking to them and seeing what they want to do and, and what they can do if they want to re-enlist, what, what they want to do in the Army, what they want to do out of the Army, you know, that's, that's basic leadership stuff. A lot of it is leadership, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I got to tell you, though, man, I, I don't want to come across like we're on our high horse here because yeah. the three of us are, are way on the trail edge of, uh, of the age level of the, of the particular characteristic <laughs> that we're talking about. And I remember looking looking at a, a potential career in the military, and man, twenty and even thirty years seems like such a long time when when you're on your first or your second enlistment. Um, and, and something that I really never started looking at, probably until I had about eighteen or twenty years in the army, was that you know we're all managed by retention control. Um, when yep. I hit when I hit um, when I was a master sergeant, I remember we were in the midst of the of the of the wars we're fighting right now, mm. and. Um, they raised the retention control points by two years for all uh, senior enlisted NCOs. Uh, so that when I was a sergeant major, I think my retention control point went all the way up to 32 years and a little bit higher if I was in a nominative position. Uh, and, but even at that level, I knew guys who were taking jobs two years at a time at the nominative level to take them 30 to 32 to 34 years of service without any definitive plan. So I, th- I think, you know, the military has a structure uh, by an enlistment time frame, four, six, eight years, right? Um, and then a uh, retention control that, that we should be reminding people that, hey, there is a definite time uh, that you have to you have to leave service and you really should start spending a little bit of time uh, planning for what comes next. Right. And a lot of our youth don't understand the, the importance maybe of – that transition and obtaining a passion and what they're going to be. I mean, both of, I think we can all say too, that we didn't all have it all figured out and know what we want to be when we grow up at 21, 28, you know, 30, some of us are still figuring it out. So, I mean, it's, it's one of these things that, uh, as much guidance as you can give throughout the process, the better. I think I, I love the, uh, Joe, what you had mentioned about leadership. That's where the wisdom mm-hmm. comes from is the experience in some cases. And maybe you haven't transitioned yourself. But if you have the wisdom and the knowledge based on your experience of seeing others who've made the transition through your years, it's a perfect opportunity to share that knowledge back with your troops to go, okay, this is a prime opportunity for you to go do X and let's talk about it or what is it that you're wanting to do. So I just throw that out there because I I think that that's a, a real opportunity that we hear a lot that people who have made the transition said, my God, I didn't know um, anything as I walked out and I thought I knew it all until I was 12, 24 months out. And then that's when I figured out what I was supposed to do, where I was supposed to be. And unfortunately, if I'd have known than what I know now. And we all say that, but what I hear it is over and over again, if there was a better opportunity within that I could have known these things early on, maybe I would have made the change. Yeah, well, this show is, is, a, good, uh, is a good resource. And there, there are a lot of resources on, online. I think, I think um, you know, the, the more information you arm yourself, you, you can arm yourself with, the, the better you're going to do, obviously. Yes. That's probably with anything in life, but... You know, the more you can search, the more you can seek, the more information you arm yourself with, the better you're going to do. Yep. You just nailed it. Well, appreciate you coming on, Joe, and joining us here on the Mentors yeah. Military Podcast. Really appreciate it and um, love everything that you guys are doing over there. Uh, now listening to the 82nd Airborne Podcast, Legacy Podcast as well. It's on my uh, to-do list that I do All every right, week. Great. Yeah, and uh, have really enjoyed your shows. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, likewise, you know, I started listening to Mentors for Mill and... Uh, 
I've subscribed. I've got it. Uh, you know, I've, they've coming into me regularly. So um, no, I appreciate it. You got some good shows, and uh, appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, we'll have to do this again real soon. We'll do it again. Yeah, thanks, gentlemen. Appreciate right. it. Have a good nice one. Take care, to you. Thanks. Nice talking to you. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. Hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran-owned companies and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a 10% discount to our listeners. That's right, 10%. These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss Vision lenses. Use the code mentors for mil or mentors the number 4 mil at SkeletonOptics.com and you'll receive your 10% discount automatically at checkout. Hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.